Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get one to you. I want everyone to have the text in front of them. Uh, when you get your hands on that, just open it to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. We're going to return to Jesus' teaching here in the fourth chapter. And he's going to give us two parables this morning. This is the end of this section on parables. Um, so we're going to have two this morning. And I want to just pick up right where we left off. That's what we do every week here at Grace Athens. We just open the Bible and we see what it says. And we try to live it together as a community. And so we have two parables this morning. Let's, let's read them through. Let's see what Jesus is up to this morning. And then we're going to get into all that he has to share with us. So first parable, verse 26 of chapter 4 reads this. And Jesus said... The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's the first parable. Jesus goes on. He's got a crowd before him. He shares him another parable. Verse 30, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? So he's talking about the kingdom. Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, Jesus says, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. We'll stop there. So we have here's two parables. And what's the main subject? You see it right there in verse 26 and verse 30. The main subject is the kingdom of God. He says, how can I liken the kingdom of God? And he picks two things in their time period and culture, which they would have understand, which is agriculture. It was, a, it was agricultural society back then. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And what you find in both parables is he's making two truth claims. And they're very simple. Let's go ahead and get them on the table. Two truth claims Jesus makes here. The first, in verses 26 through 29... Jesus is saying that the kingdom's growth, that's the key word, its growth is certain because it's ultimately in God's hands and not ours. Okay, that's the first one. Kingdom of God, its growth, the salvation of the world, all those different things, certain because it's ultimately in God's hands, not ours. The second truth claim that he's making here, and this is a pretty bold one when you think about it historically, is this. The second is saying that the kingdom's success is certain, final, fact, going to happen because it's ultimately in God's hands and not in ours. Those are the two truth claims he's making. And what I would say as I've been studying this and thinking on this is, oh, if we could just get that truth right in the church, right? We try and put so much in our hands, don't we? We get so nervous. We have this image of God that God is this nervous God pacing the corridors of heaven saying, who will save the world for me? Right. That the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And we think God is nervous. Jonathan Edwards used to talk about God. He said God is the happiest being that there ever was. God is not nervous. God is at peace. 
I was working and moving. But nervousness, angst is not a quality of the Godhead at all. Why? Because the kingdom's growth and its success is expressed agriculturally in the parable is certain. But we in the church, let's just be honest, especially the American church, we can suffer from this savior complex. We have this Messiah complex that we think it's all in our hands. And yes, there's things to do. No question. The, 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 the Great Commission, Jesus, the, the verb is go. Go. There's things to do. Go make disciples of all nations. But he finishes that up and he says, but don't forget this. I will be with you to the end of the age. What makes the going successful and certain is the fact that God is with them to the end of the age. It's not ultimately in our hands. It's in, it's in God's hands. But we suffer from the Savior complex. Habakkuk 2.14 gives a promise that says, For the earth will be filled. That's certain language. It will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, God... God works in some pretty awesome ways, which, which what we've found over the last century is that even though the church is starting to decline and some places die in the northern hemisphere, if you know what's happening in the church right now, there is a revival happening in the southern hemisphere. This is how God works, right? If something's dying over here and not taking root as it should, God will begin to resurrect something over here. And when you look at the statistics, the church in Africa is booming, in Asia is booming, in South America is booming. This is how God works, because it's not ultimately in our hands, it's in his. Buddy Hoffman, the founding pastor of the Grace Churches, used to give this great quote. He said, he would say emphatically with his great southern accent, he'd say, you can't kill the church. He'd talk like that. You can't kill the church. And you'd ask why? He says, because the Bible says the church is Christ's body and God will always resurrect it. That's a pretty good one, isn't it? Keep that in your pocket. Doesn't matter what happens. There's all kinds of things for us to be nervous about and and concerned about and scared about in today's world. Especially post-pandemic. We live in a, a new normal, they say. And there's all kinds of different threats and vulnerabilities in, in, in America, much less the American church. And yet Jesus speaks this parable then, when there was some nervousness then. He speaks it to, it, to us now. Its growth and its success is certain. Why? Because we have more money and more technology in the American church than anywhere else in the world. We have more theologians and seminaries and have published more things. We've done more things with the instruments of man than we possibly could in any other part of the global church. That's not why. It's because it's in the sovereign hands of God. This is what Jesus is talking about this morning. We get nervous about it now, just like they did back then in the first century. And there's Israel. They questioned Jesus. There was something here in Mark's gospel, something about Jesus's messiahship that left the crowds feeling insecure about the kingdom's growth and success. That's why he tells the parable. When you want to get after what's the message of a parable? What's the, what, why is Jesus saying this thing? It's because of something that came before. He's giving this parable. Why does Jesus give the parable of the prodigal son? What is he doing 
Well, the Pharisees are wondering why he's hanging out with all the outcasts and quote-unquote sinners and prostitutes and these different people, the tax collectors. These ones that seem to not be following God. These prodigals. Why does Jesus give that parable? Because the Pharisees are sitting there and they're questioning why Jesus is befriending and hugging and running to these people. And so he explains with the parable, with the prodigal son. And he says, I'm doing this because this is what the father does. He runs to the outcast. So if you want to get to the message of a parable, you just have to, uh, have to ask the question, what's the motivation behind why Jesus is giving this parable? It's because the people around him were insecure about the kingdom's actual growth and success. So he tells this parable. Let's look at it again. Verse 26. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So if you've done any gardening... Go there in your mind. The farmer sleeps, Jesus says, and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Jesus is saying it's in God's sovereign hands. Now, can we be honest? That makes us a bit nervous. I've mentioned this a couple times. It's just what's happening in our life. We're going through a whole trying to sell our house and buy our house. And we're going to closing actually this Thursday. That's a very, just so you know, college students, that's a very nerve-wracking experience. Okay? You're not, there's all kinds of uncertainty in that moment. Right? When we don't have a measure of control, we naturally get a little nervous. Right? And the reality is we don't control God's kingdom. Jesus says, let me get this into your heads and hearts. So he uses this analogy of the farmer. One of the first things a farmer will tell you, if you've ever been around a farmer, is that you have little to no control in farming. Little to no control. You don't control the sunlight. You don't control the rain. You don't control the insects. You don't control the growth. A farmer doesn't yield a harvest in the fall and go out there and say, Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. Do you see this? I did that. This is my work. That's not how farmers act. Farmers are some of those humble people you'll ever meet. Because they live in a state where they have very little control. Jesus is saying that when the kingdom of God grows and spreads over the centuries, over the globe, into the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, into the Philippines, into Africa, into North America, over the centuries, when the Lord returns, we Christians won't look at the harvest and say, look at what we did. Look at what we did that. The church did that. We won't talk like that. God did it. In verse 27, it says that the farmer doesn't cause the growth nor have a clue of how it even happens. It says he knows not how. Jesus is trying to speak to us this morning and say God grows his kingdom, not man. And praise God for that because we'd mess it up. God is in charge of human history. And in the end... God will cause the kingdom to crash like a tidal wave over all of his world. Let's really pause and think about that. God is managing this world 
to a final good and glorious end where he will set all things right. What does that do to you when you actually let that truth in? God is actively managing this world. Some people look at that and say, hmm, I'm not even called manager. I don't know if he's a really good manager. But I think when you take all the data in and you think about that reality of God managing the world and realize that God has to deal with selfish sinners like us and he gives us a measure of free will and choice and all the different possibilities that could happen, all the different tragedies, all the different people, and to see that God is carrying this, this thing in his hands to a final good and awesome end, I look at the world and I say, God's an amazing manager. All that can go wrong. Doesn't mean there's a suffering. Doesn't mean that there is a tragedy. But God is in the midst of all of it, working it and moving it to a good and final end. The truth of Scripture is that no man, no nation, no tech, no future AI, no Antichrist can oppose God's future end and goal. It won't happen. Isaiah 40, what, if you need to, sometimes I get so wrapped up in my own little world, and basically what am I doing? I'm playing God to myself. I'm trying to be the ultimate manager of my universe, and I have to put myself in the center of it. This is the garden. This is what happens in the garden. It's not just that the garden happens, that it happens every day. You heard me say this. And we try and become God and play God, right? We try and step on his throne and manage everything. And when that happens to me, one of the things I need to do is I just need to go back to the Old Testament. And I need to read these passages that give me a bigger vision of who God really is. Isaiah 40 is one of them. We can bring it to the screen. Let this into your heart this morning. It reads this. Who can fathom? Do I have an echo or is that just me? We're working on it? Okay, great. I'll read it anyway. Isaiah 40. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? I love that. God doesn't have a teacher. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altered fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? You see... As I've been thinking about this this week, we Christians get all anxious about man's global plans when we forget that the almighty God has a plan. Doesn't that just put you at ease? God has a plan. Bezos and Tim Cook and Biden and Trump and Putin and all these different actors, Soros and we could go down the line on all sides of the aisle. Xi Jinping, they all have plans, finite plans, but the almighty God has an ultimate plan. God has the plan 
the master plan for the nations that will prevail in the end. Our problem, my problem, is that I often have a small little God in my head. When I think of Yahweh, the creator and maker of heaven and earth, if you were to examine my life, you would say, by the fruit of it, that often I live with this unbiblical small God in my head. It's God on a leash. It's a God treat, treated like a little pet companion that I can control, right? It's an idol. And what I need to do is go back over and over to passages like Isaiah 40 and let the true God renew my mind of who he really is. And let the God of the Bible, the God of reality, expand more and more to the truthfulness of who God is and how God works. But often I live with this small God, this pet God that I can control. And not the all supreme sovereign God of the Bible. Sometimes you just need to get out your Bible and go back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament you see so much of how God is involved in the plans of the nations. And you see that God has a plan. You see that God works in all kinds of mysterious ways. That he's active and involved Romans 8, God, for those that are called according to his purpose, God works out all things for their good. What kind of divine magician must he be to take the muck and mess that we make of our lives and somehow coordinate them in a way to flow in a direction that's only heading towards good? That's an all-intelligent, all-good, all-powerful God. And he's doing that for all seven billion people and all persons that ever existed. With all kinds of evil coming our direction and all kinds of threats and vulnerabilities. God is moving all of that to a final good. He's involved in the nation. Psalms 22. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm 66. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Here's the takeaway principle for us. I made it as A to B as I possibly could. Go to that next slide. Small God equals big anxiety. Big God equals little anxiety. That's how it works in Scripture. The more I live with this little idol God in my mind as who he is, the larger my anxiety is going to be. But the more I come under the true picture of the big God of the Bible, the smaller my anxiety As Christians, and I think as a church, we have to learn to make our home in the sovereignty of God. And when you go through crisis, man, it's one or the other, right? When you go through crisis, that's a fork in the road. You're either going to deepen your life in the sovereignty of God, or you're going to burn out over here trying to manage it all yourself. That's how it works. And there's crisis in this room. I'm well aware of much of it. And I pray for it. And my family will go through crisis one day. That's one of the reasons for the church. The Bible says we're brothers and sisters now, whether you like it or not. By a deeper blood than just biological blood, but by the blood of Christ, an eternal blood. Your family can die out. The family of God never does because it's rooted in God. You're born of him. 
God will never go away. And so we're brothers and sisters, and we need to care for one another, pray for one another, and together grow as a church over the decades more and more in the beautiful vision of who God really is according to Jesus. Small God, big anxiety. Big God, little anxiety. And there's a lot we can be anxious about. Future pandemics, that'll keep you up at night. There's always a new thing coming out, it seems like now. Globalism, economic recessions, nefarious elite behind the world's dealings, climate catastrophe, and all the rest. In the midst of all that, we need to catch a bigger vision of God. Jonathan Edwards talked about living with a God-entranced vision of all things. Doesn't that sound nice? A God-entranced vision of all things. So when he thought about his children, he thought about a big God. When he thought about his future career and finances, he thought about a big God. When he thought about the state of the world, the church, he thought about a big God. All those thoughts began to have connections, synapses in his mind to this big, massive, all-good, all-loving and we live differently because of it. That's one of the things that Dallas Willard talks about Jesus. He says one of, you, one of the things you won't find with Jesus is that he's not anxious, he's not stressed, he, he, he's not like that. He says one of the main characteristics you'll find with Jesus is that he's incredibly relaxed. Why? Because he has a big vision of the all-loving God. He knows his Father is good and works all things for his good. Scriptures talk about the throne of God. It's this vision of God ruling on his throne above the earth. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Isaiah 40 again, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. I let some of that in, and I have this thought to myself. If God can manage the nations in the midst of all its sinfulness, I think God's competent enough to manage my little life. A few years ago, I went through some medical issues. I actually took a 30-day medical leave from here at the church. This was 20. 19, I believe it was. I was going through different medical issues, and my initial reaction in medical issues is to complain to Danielle. That's where I go first, and I'm looking for sympathy and, and help, and, but, but I kind of keep it here, you know, just with us, and I slowly start to let it out to, to, to friends and others, and it was a very, very difficult time. It was a very disorienting time. It was a very fear-ridden time in 2019, and <clears throat> I have this Older gentleman, he's in his 80s, uh, former pastor and seminary president, and done a lot of great stuff in, in the church for a long time. He's in his 80s, he now lives in South Carolina, and he basically decided to me from a distance, and so I thought, it got so bad, I said, I need, I need to call, things Jim, I need to call Jim. And I was just gonna run through the rap sheet of everything I was going through, expecting all kinds of great sympathy and, and comfort. This is why I'm calling, having attention. And I called Jim, and you know, I take easily five minutes to explain all that is going on medically. And I get done, and there's a long pause. Doesn't say anything. 
And he goes on and he says, what do you expect? What do you expect, John? We live in a broken world. He says, but you're in God's kingdom. You're in his kingdom forever now. Therefore, God has all of his eyes and attentions on your well-being. You're in the kingdom of God. Didn't you make that decision? Didn't you choose to follow Jesus? Isn't he now your shepherd? Aren't you now totally covered by the kingdom of God? Don't you think God will work all this out for your good in the end, for your well-being? You think he's forgotten that for a moment? No. You're in his kingdom. You've decided to follow him, and therefore, he's 100% sovereign over your life. And I thought to myself, that's not what I was looking for, Jim. <laughs> I didn't need a biblical rebuke from you. I mean, it's a comfort. He went on and on. I thought, you're in his kingdom. He's your father. You see, it's when crisis comes up, we go from just believing these biblical truths to being, to being led to have to actually experience them. Where, as James says, we're not just hearers of the word, but we have to make the decision by God's grace while we're a doer of the word. And Jim was trying to push me into that direction. You're in his kingdom. You're his. You're his, period. You're his son. He has you. Let's briefly move to the second parable. Again, Jesus, why is he telling them these parables? It's because, like us, they can be overly anxious about the success of God's kingdom. And so he says this in verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? And what parable shall we use for it, Jesus says? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest, that's the key word, of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What are the crowds anxious about? Well, it's right there in verse 31. Small beginnings. Small beginnings. That's why he uses the analogy of the small seed. Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he uses this parable. And it's the smallest of seeds in verse 31 that eventually grows to take over the entire garden. What Jesus was doing as the Messiah, historical, right now I'm going to give you some historical context. What he's doing as the Messiah in the backwoods of the empire in Mark chapter 4 didn't seem to have any effect on the emperor Caesar in Rome at all. They expected the Jewish people, the kingdom of God to come with the destruction of the Roman legions and the reinstitution of the Davidic monarchy. That's what the Messiah is supposed to be, the coming king. They were ready for Jesus to assemble his guerrilla army and attack Jerusalem where the Romans had occupied. That's what they were used to. Just two centuries earlier, this was still in their consciousness at the time, in the culture, there was a man named Judas of Maccabeus. And that's exactly what he did. He kicked out the Syrian army who had taken over Jerusalem and had taken over control of the temple. He raised up a guerrilla army and they took it over. This is actually where we get the festival of lights uh, in the Jewish tradition, which is called Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from this event. They took back the temple. The date is December 14, uh, 164 B.C just before Christ had come. And so they're, they're wondering, why isn't Jesus doing this? If he's the self-proclaimed Messiah, 
Why isn't he doing what Judas of Maccabeus had done? Instead of assembling a guerrilla army, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom in a surprising way, which is by healing the sick, casting out demons, befriending outcasts, and announcing the gospel of God. That's very small beginnings. That doesn't seem to have much effect on the corridors of power. And he's not even doing most of it in Jerusalem. He's out in Capernaum, which is very much the backwoods. How is this in any way going to change the world? Much less from their perspective, he fails because he gets killed. And when he dies, he only has a mere hundred followers to his name. This was not the makings of a global movement by any means. It's a very, very small seed. But it's God's seed. That's the point. It's God's seed. God grows it, not man. What you find about the mustard seed, this is why Jesus used this one, is that the mustard seed was a very invasive plant. Think of like kudzu, bamboo, massively invasive. We have a quote from one of the scholars I read this week that talks about, uh, David Strauss talks about this plant. While the tiny size of the mustard seed may be sufficient to account for Jesus' choice of this imagery, some commentators have noted how strange it is to use this plant as an image of the kingdom of God. One might expect the kingdom of God to be compared to a mighty oak or a stately cedar of Lebanon, but a mustard bush? Mustard was invasive and even dangerous to gardens. Pliny the Elder wrote, that's an ancient uh, author, that the plant grows entirely wild. Though it is improved by being transplanted, but on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free. As the seed, as the seed when it falls, germinates at once. Interesting that Jesus would use the mustard seed. It's highly invasive. It's hard to get rid of it. The reality is, he's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in Jesus' words, is this highly invasive reality that eventually spreads around the globe, making its way into everything. That's its future. We all know that when the seed of the kingdom drops somewhere, it's hard to get rid of it. You drop the seed of the kingdom into a family, and it begins to spread on the different hearts of that family. It changes. When you drop the seed of a kingdom, uh, for me, you know, on a football team back in high school, it begins to, it becomes invasive. You can't get rid of it. It starts to do things. It starts to spread. It germinates immediately. Strauss also says this, when Jesus left this earth, he had little more than 100 followers, yet that mustard seed of a movement swept across the Mediterranean region and throughout the world, transforming the lives of millions and changing the course of human history. There's never been, nor will there be, such a global sweeping movement of transformation as the kingdom of God. Why? Why is this the case? It's one answer. It's because of the sovereignty of God. I believe Grace Athens is a God seed. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, y'all. We've changed venues like 10 times. We should have died a long time ago. If we ain't mustard, I don't know what we are. 
Those things should have been snuffed out a long time ago. COVID, you know, wiped, wiped out half of, half of our community. I mean, we shouldn't be here. Only thing, the only reason I think we're here is because this isn't of man. This wasn't man's idea. I believe this is of God. And it's a small seed. Look at this giant auditorium. It's a small seed. It's small beginnings. But a year ago, God decided to drop this seed right here in this high school, right here in the midst of this community. And I believe if it's God's seed, it's going to spread over the decades. And it's going to reach into all kinds of families, all kinds of homes, all kinds of different institutions and clubs and parks. I believe we're going to reach the neighborhoods and the nations and the next generation. That's our, that's our entire mission statement. Why? Because we're clever? Because we know how to... Make it work? Let me tell you right now, you just sit in those elder meetings. We don't know how to make it work. We pray, and we try, and we learn, and we pray again, and we try. It's not because it's our seed. It's because it's God's seed. I love what it says in Revelation 21, right at the end of the Bible. You really get to know what God's doing right at the end. Revelation 21, it says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Go there with me. Get, just do this thought experiment. God's saying he's the beginning and he is the end. What does that mean? That God is at the beginning of human life and history, and God is at, and how long is it going to go? Something like this, who knows? It's at the very end of human history. God and God. That's how it says it right here. Okay? What does that mean? That means all of human life and history is sandwiched between God. God at the beginning, God at the end. We live. Right in the middle of the hands and the purposes of Almighty God. And he has that date in mind, that number of millennia upon which we'll be in this current reality and move to the next. But all of it is sandwiched between the good and sovereign and loving hands of God. Think about your own life. The next stop for you on the train of life is God. That's comforting to me. Maybe not comforting if you don't love God. That might be a little nervous. Your next stop, the train of your life, is the God who is love. For the entire existence of the human world, the next stop on the train that, we're, that we've been on, how many millennial tracks, I don't know, but the next stop and the beginning of it is the God who is love. the only place the train is going. Paul says in Romans 11, I love this. He says, he has this moment of like, wow, God really is amazing. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him, this is God, for from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You come from God. You will one day return back to God. Your life is sandwiched between the loving arms 
of the Almighty. What's the takeaway from all of this? How does this, how does living with this bigger vision of God change our daily life? Well, Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. When he talks about why are you nervous about all these things? How you will eat and how you'll be clothed, all the provisions of your life. He says, isn't that what the Gentiles, the unbelievers worry about? But your father in heaven will take care of all your needs. And he gives us one action step, one takeaway. He says, so if that's true, if God is this big, awesome, capable, loving God in your life, and you're in his kingdom, you're his, all that's true. He says, here's the takeaway. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these added. Some of us need to let that in deeper this morning. Your one action step, all that's real and true, growing and expanding in your mind and heart. If God's got this, then I have the freedom, the capability, the leisure, the space, the mental and emotional capacity to seek first the kingdom, not myself, and his righteousness, and all will be taken care of. What a way to live. You've been around those old saints that just seem to be free. They just seem to have a lot of spaciousness around them. They're not cluttered with all these different anxiety and plans and agendas and intentions. They just seem to be kind of resting in the reality that God has this. And they're very uh, inhabitable, inhabitable people to be around. They actually feel like you're being loved and listened to and heard and seen. Why? Because they're seeking first the kingdom of God. Because they know everything in their life is cared for. Let me end with just an encouragement. It just came to mind. It wasn't even part of what I was going to say, but I remember this one definitely applies to you college students and maybe young, young folks, but I think it applies across all of life. I remember when I was getting to that age of thinking about a significant other and was all worried about that, and I had this thought of, how in the world am I going to know who to marry? I don't know who to marry. There's 7 billion people that said 4 billion of them are women. I have no clue who's right for me. Right? And I just remember that morning, I got down on my knees and I prayed a very simple prayer. And I just said, Lord, I want to invite your special sovereignty into my life. Would you bring me my wife? And I knew by praying that I was, I was pretty ready. I never prayed that whole prayer about me. You know, finding that someone. I prayed that prayer. Would you, would you bring me my wife? I want to invite your special sovereignty into this decision. And God did. There's so many things out ahead of you. There's so many unknowns, so many question marks. So many things that we can become overly anxious about. But there's a way to live. The big vision of God. A trust in God. It invites his special sovereignty into all of your choices and decisions where you can live free in his kingdom to seek his kingdom first. That's the only vision of the Christian life. That's the only future of the Christian life that God has for every single person in this room. And here's the reality. We need each other to grow into it. Right? We start as children and we mature in the faith. 
We need each other, all of us here, to mature into this bigger vision and revelation of who God is. I remember dear friends here going through a crisis. And we tried to support them. And I saw their faith grow like crazy. And it grew my faith like crazy. That's what it means to be brothers and sisters in the family of faith. We want to be a church that seeks first his kingdom. So let me invite Will, and as I do that, Will and the team, I just want to ask you this one question. What's that one thing in your life right now that's so clutched tightly in your hands that you need to loosen and hand over into the capable hands of God? What is that for you? What are you clutching on to? Could be a situation at work, could be a child, could be finances, could be health, could be the salvation of one we love. But what's that one thing that the Spirit of God might bring to mind that you're clutching on to that you may hand over to the hands of God? You need to invite